0: Hello everyone, just a quick message before you delve into the backlog of the After Film School Club podcast. In the first half of 2020, we went under the name of the Above the Line podcast, since that's the website where we were exclusively based for that time. Rest assured that you listen to the right podcast now when you listen to this episode, because we've rebranded and have released all our exclusive episodes for free. So, we hope you enjoy where we started off, and continue to enjoy where we're going to go in the future. Happy listening! Hello everyone and welcome back to the Above the Line podcast where your host, so that's me, Simon Ramshaw, and your favourite filmmaking masterclass team have a chinwag with a creative who's been kind enough to give us a little chunk of their time to enlighten us about something that we need to find out more about. Before we introduce our guest, I'd be very remiss if I didn't introduce my co-hosts, so with me today we first of all have the brains of the operation, Maria Caruana Galizia. How are you Maria?
1: Alright Simon, hello
0: And we also have uh, one of Above the Lines film critics and a good friend and collaborator of mine, Jack Keating. How are you, Jack? I'm very well, thank you, Simon. Awesome. The three of us are here today to pick the brains of a BAFTA winner and two-time Academy Award nominee production designer who has worked with, I'm counting these on one hand now, Steven Spielberg, Christopher Nolan, Terry Gilliam, Danny Boyle, Michael Mann, and, oh, I'm on another hand now, Ang Lee, to name but a few. It's Guy Hendricks dias How are you, Guy? Fine, thank you. Excellent. Very good. I'm very excited for tonight's discussion because, truth be told, production design is not a department that I'm particularly familiar with. So as we have a look through your work, I'm hoping to discover a lot more about it since you have been an integral part of a lot of films that both me and Jack have grown up with. (laughs) We're of that generation where, you know, you started off with X-Men 2 and then obviously Inception blew our minds when we were like 14, 15 years old. So... Wind back the clock. In that case, I guess my first question should be How did you get started in the industry?
2: Um, it was uh, a really a long term dream of mine to be in the film industry, but there wasn't really a way to get into it. Um, it was a fair old time ago now. And uh, there were maybe two film sort of schools available in uh, sort of the late 80s when I was at uh, college and university. Uh, One of them was at the Royal College of Arts and I studied uh, industrial design there. But one of the sort of tasks that we were given was to, I suppose, get involved in another department. So I chose uh, the film department, the sort of fledgling film department there and worked on a couple of projects with budding directors and producers and production designers. But really I was being, I think, used a little bit as someone who could sort of throw together clever props and do illustrations and basically a one-man art department. And I loved every minute of it. But I continued on uh, with my industrial design and ended up working for Sony in Japan after graduating from from the RCA. And I worked there for two or three years on the sort of last generation of Walkmans and uh, Discmans. just take <laughs> us back a little bit, just before <laughs> the age of MP3. Um, and uh, I had a one-man exhibition in Tokyo. I didn't really think much about it. A friend put it together for, for me, um, of just drawings and, and uh, models and things I'd been making in my little tiny Tokyo apartment. It so happened that at exactly the same time, there was a retrospective of George Lucas and ILM, and the art director and curator of that exhibit happened to wander into my tiny little rented gallery and saw my work and left a business card, uh, basically offering me a job. It's really as simple as that. So even though all through growing up in the south of of, uh, England, in Devon, where I'm from, and uh, funding my college by keeping chickens, believe it or not, I had a (laughs) chicken farm. Uh, I never thought for a second that I would get a chance to be in the film industry. So this was my big moment. It was a chance to wait for a holiday, get on a plane, go to, uh, fly to San Francisco and take that scary drive across the Golden Gate Bridge up into Marin County and, uh, and, and meet the guys at ILM who welcomed me with open arms and said, We need people like you. Wow. Um, so I quit my job at Sony and was off to, to ILM and became employee number 300. I remember that. I was employee number 300. It's so it a nice very round figure. Small, it was sort of a medium sized company at the time. Right. Um, now, of course, I think ILM, on average, has about two or 3,000 people <laughs> on payroll when they're working on a big uh, CGI project. But in those days, CGI was still somewhat of a fledgling uh, business. Of course, ILM had already produced the work for Steven's, uh, you know, Jurassic Park, uh, The Mask. I remember the film The Mask with uh-huh. uh, Jim Carrey as the big green sort of character. That had just come out. And so... All of a sudden, CGI work was in vogue. And uh, although I'd had no training in CGI, I was hired as a visual effects art director and proceeded to work on a number of projects there, including Twister, uh, which uh, was classic. a rather strange uh, uh, storm chaser movie from the mid 90s. Yeah. I worked on things like Men in Black, 101 Dalmatians, which was made with four Dalmatian puppies. Uh, (laughs) that were replicated, um, and and a bunch of things. I mean, the 90s was a very difficult time for the film industry because every director was obsessed with using CGI, and quite frankly, badly in most cases. (laughs) So we we had a terrible period of time. But fortunately for me, as I started to grow in the industry, I moved to Los Angeles to pursue production design, and... um, At that time, I think there were a generation of filmmakers who were starting to get their breaks, and they had the same opinion as me about uh, the use of CGI in film, which was it was a fantastic tool. It expanded worlds, it expanded the ability to create new characters and and vehicles and things that the likes of uh, Ray Harryhausen could only have dreamed of back in the day, back in the 60s and 70s, when there was traditional stop-motion animation, for example. But now we had a generation of filmmakers in the likes of uh, you know, Darren Aronofsky and Christopher Nolan uh, who were coming up and they understood the correct way to use CGI, which was really to use it as a measured tool um, as opposed to the full creation of, of the world, so to speak. I think now, just uh, while we're having a sort of an open conversation, we're in a new era of CGI I think spearheaded by the likes of uh, James Cameron where we now can create full worlds in CGI without worrying but there was a very interesting period uh, where I think we were caught in a world where we had to use CGI as a support tool and not as the the main event so I went off on a bit of a tangent there but there you No go. That's was not my, at all. that was my beginning
3: <laughs> Yeah because I remember all that horrible CGI from the 90s that was kind of part of my <laughs> childhood you know like when it was still in its teething stages with the exceptions of something like Jurassic Park like you say that was that's the one that would always stand out and I feel like you could because it knew to use it sort of mesh it with say um, like the animatronics and that sort of stuff Um, so yeah I, I remember all of that so vividly. As you've moved through the industry what are some challenges you've had sort of maneuvering from all these different roles you've kind of had. So you've done like illustrating concept art. You've been right. assistant art director, uh, head production designer. What are some challenges in these stages of career?
2: I suppose every, it's all a challenge. I mean, mm. it's, uh, it's a highly competitive um, industry. Everybody wants to be in it and everyone wants your job. So the challenge is, you know, how do you try to make yourself the best you can be? how do you try and uh, innovate and stay ahead but the the lesson that that I learned is just it sounds a bit boring really but hard work it really Mm. comes down to hard work Mm. and uh, and dedicating pretty much your entire life and for that matter your family's life in some cases Mm. uh, to, to you know trying to reach these goals.
1: Could I ask you, Guy, I have a little bit of experience of watching you work, which was uh, an absolute privilege and seeing you build huge sets and manage a really big department on Agora, but I was wondering sort of how do you approach any script really with your production designer head on? I guess you see it differently to the way a cameraman or a costume designer would see and how how do do you work with those departments to create the world or how do you interpret story and then bring it to the director?
2: Well, I used to I, I used to just immediately start drawing. It was almost like a nervous tick, um, and I would be very worried actually about what I was going to be able to achieve because many of these projects, Agora being one of them, were outlandish ideas. You know, d- d- designing and building entire cities on on quite frankly shoestring budgets. They always are in the end. You never have enough money for any of these projects, but that was always something I worried about. And I think over the years I've changed quite a bit. And now I spend a lot of time listening to what the director's saying and and what his or her vision is really, what their vision is going to be. And I do a lot of that, a lot of contemplation before I start to draw now. Um, A lot more research heavy these days than I used to be as well. And uh, I find that some of the solutions come from from the research whether it's you know historical or or even science fiction
1: and could I ask you can you give us a bit of insight into uh your department because and I think anybody watching the credits of a film in, in the cinema it's just like you have art director you have props you have could you give us a bit of insight into how your department functions and who you hire and how you collaborate with them
2: Sure, I mean, you're gonna get varied answers on this one. There's always a big mystery about what a production designer does. Um, But really for me, it it breaks into two or three roles. I have to be a sort of a financier. I'm given a a chunk of money, whether it's a million dollars or $15 million. And I'm supposed to designate that money across a series of of sort of visual uh, challenges. The second part of that job, I think, is to be the creative support to the director. And that can vary. If you have someone like Terry Gilliam, who's a brilliant artist, then it becomes a slightly intimidating sort of, oh, my God, I wonder if I can draw well enough for this man. (laughs) Uh, And then there are other directors who are perhaps less visual and they they lean on you more heavily for support. How am I going to make this look? How should this look, you know? And I often find that with directors who are from, you know, diverse cultures who are pulled into, for example, a film about British culture, and I'm leaned on more heavily. How is this supposed to look? I don't know. I'm from India. I'm from South America. How is this supposed to look? It's your, your culture. So there's that. You become a sort of a, a visual slash historical advisor. And the third part of that job really is, is management. You have to manage an enormous team. And uh, you you have to be, I think, a good diplomat, but you also have to be firm. You have to make sure that people understand that it is your vision. Um, And I'm very firm on that. To me, it's my vision, mine and the director's and the DP's vision. It's not the prop master's vision. It's not the set decorator's vision. It's my vision. Mm -hmm. And I'm very, very territorial about that, partly because I've worked so damn hard to get to that position and it's my right you know mm-hmm. I've serviced a lot of other people's visions over the years but also I think that if you have a singular vision the design has more clarity the film has more clarity and more focus and there's more of a thread of theme and color that runs through the film mm-hmm. i can spot films that have been designed by committee and i can spot films where designers have let illustrators run riot and just design what they want and just sort of, you know, let them do what they want. I can spot those a mile off. And for me, that's a shame, it's a missed opportunity. Talking of um, having your own
3: sort of vision, how did it feel when you were working on something say like X-Men 2, which is already a very established universe? Yes. um, Was there a lot of research that went into that? A lot of compromise as well when trying to, you know, basically give, you know, it had a big fan base already before the oh, films yeah. were even out. Um, so trying to like um, give them what they want while still having your own vision on that. Was that quite a challenge?
2: Yeah. Well, X-Men two is a really interesting one. I'm amazed that you guys even bring that up because nobody <laughs> brings that up anymore. Can and I really just say, talking, I X-Men two. About
0: it. Yeah. X-Men yeah, two is say. one of, remains one of my favorite superhero films. And I will yeah. say it is one of the films that got me interested in cinema. Cause I remember oh, when I was, when I was seven, my dad got me my first ever copy of Empire magazine because it right. had Wolverine on the front and it had Lady Deathstrike and I think it was Mystique. And basically, yes. from then I collected it ever since. So X Men Two was kind of like the gateway drug for me in a, in a lot of ways. <laughs> well, I it
2: I still I still hold it dear to my heart. I, I'm yeah. not really a a comic book geek. Um, but you do sort of immerse yourself in that world for the period that you're on the film. So myself and my, my wife, Dominique, who very much often works as my art director, we immersed ourselves in the research of the Marvel universe mm-hmm. in order to understand what we were getting into on that film. Of course, you're absolutely right. There was an X-Men film. Brian Singer had produced X-Men. Uh, it was hugely successful, which, of course, led to the sequel. And uh, the designer on that film was the great John Meyer, two-time Oscar winner, a fantastic man and brilliant designer. And he had laid down very much the groundwork for X-Men 2, for which I think um, I remained extremely disciplined um, and understood that it would have been terrible to upset the sort of the iconography that was laid down In that first film, the famous blue corridors, Cerebro, Mm. um, the wonderful circular doors. So all of that work for me was about faithfully recreating it. So as not to upset the storyline for Brian and the writers. And also to be respectful to John and and, and all the people that love the film. But luckily for me, X-Men 2 was an expansive film. It took what what was designed in the first X-Men uh, film and expanded it exponentially. Suddenly the world opened up. So there was plenty for me to design. Mm-hmm. So I poured a lot of my creative energy into two issues. The first was the design of Stryker's base, which was the sort of subterranean base that Stryker had his, his operations, and it was where Weapon X had been created. Mm-hmm. Um, an interesting storyline that uh, has become very popular in other films. I, th- I think the uh, the Bourne identity, the Bourne supremacy, if you look at the, the Bourne series, I think you look at the storyline of uh, uh, Matt Damon finally realising that he... Had uh, actually nominated himself for this role. It's very similar to the Wolverine uh, mm-hmm. storyline, the Amnesiac um, Killer. Basically. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I kind of go off on a tangent there again. No. Um, but it perfect. was it was uh, it was lovely to to work on that film and um, and have the support of Fox uh, Studios at the time and a fledgling company at the time, Marvel, who were not really a studio. They were a, a film company. And they utilized other studios to uh, to sort of support them and get their work out. At the time, Kevin Fahey, who now runs Marvel, was uh, the sort of executive assistant to Avi Arad and, and was uh, like me, we were just kind of starting out. It was a, a really exciting, wonderful time. Brian was at his best, no doubt. He was wonderful at that time. And um, so yes, the the. The film was a challenge because it was my first. I worked extremely hard, but we also had a wonderful script on that film. you know
0: yeah. we
2: we really did. Financially, we were tremendously challenged um, with what was required. As you probably remember, there was a a huge opening sequence with an attack on the White House, which remains one of my favorite scenes to have worked on, you know, it was just amazing to to work on that mm-hmm. and understand, the, um, the work bet- that goes on between stunts, uh, special effects, visual effects, the director of photography, the art department, you know, it really was wonderful. It
3: really is memorable as well. Yeah, it's, that scene is still talked about today, which is, yeah. you know, a testament, really, I think.
2: so. Yeah, no, it was lovely. Brian's wonderful idea to set it to classical music was also yeah. a, a Groundbreaking. Well, yeah. he wanted something to to separate X2 from the the very fashionable at the time, the sort of the Matrix
0: series, mm. which was Techno you know, Techno. It was so. sort of
2: fast-paced dance music yeah, and, yeah. and kung fu. <laughs> and and he wanted the elegance, but he wanted something very, very different. Mm. Interestingly enough, we also had a an advisor on that film from the White House who openly showed me where all the escape routes are from the Oval Office. So if I really? decided to uh, <laughs> to go to the Oval Office, I'd know where all the secret doors are.
0: So he was basically like, don't design it like this. Yeah, Show sure. the opposite way. Well, so. I, I,
2: Brian, who's very interested in all this stuff, sort of, you know, he and I took this guy to one side and said, look, we won't tell anyone, but where's the state group, where's the, and, and there are actually two or three, but uh, there
0: you go. Okay. You heard it here first, guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, Winding back the clock slightly more, one of the things that stood out to me as well as X-Men 2 in your body of work was Tarsum Singh's The Cell, where oh, you right. were assistant art director. Now, there is yeah. a lot of just crazy imagination that's just yeah. been poured into that very uh, extravagant design of its, um, Vincent D'Onofrio's mind, isn't it? Yes, So. Yeah. What sort of research did you undertake for that film?
2: Well, I've got to be honest with you. Look, uh, The Cell's another one that I film that I really care about and have a a deep passion for and and really threw myself into. Um, But let's just say as a disclaimer here that a sort of a killer like that probably doesn't have as beautiful dreams as we gave him. Uh, It's probably not the mind of a killer. No. Uh, But but anyway, uh, moving on. (laughs) I should also say something about the fantastic production designer on that film. That was the great Tom Foden, who was, um, and this will be very apparent when I say it, Tom Foden was a production designer who came up in the sort of the 90s with a lot of the most famous music videos you would have seen at that period, at the height of the sort of music video golden age, I suppose. And so with Tom's sort of guiding hand... I was taken on as the, the sort of the, the key concept illustrator, but the role of assistant art director was sort of thrown to me as a, you know, a nugget of, of goodwill because I, he felt I was the one that was gonna bring or help him bring the crazy vision to the screen which indeed I, I tried my hardest to do. I think you did. Um, and we mined heavily a lot of, of the greatest fine artists, mm-hmm. uh, you know, from Francis Bacon to, I don't know, I can't even think now, but um, we, we really Bacon mined LA, yeah. heavily uh, some extraordinary fine art and and fashion to to bring that vision to life. And, of course, Eiko Ishioka, who was a wonderful costume designer, brilliant lady, who sadly is no longer with us, her inspiration was, was key to the success of that film as well. Mm-hmm. In, in fact, one of the most exciting moments for me was the collaboration between her and Tom Foden led to one incredible idea, which was to have Vincent D'Onofrio's character's role as, as the king in this sort of dream world or inside his mind. Uh, Starga was his name, I recall. Um, was to actually have the cloak become the walls of the set mm, so as he uh-huh. stepped forward and started coming down these stairs uh, you realised that the red walls were actually not red it was his cloak that was stuck to the walls and it sort of slithered around the walls behind him revealing actually gold walls behind very interesting yeah. to get into the idea of the set and the costume becoming the same thing there there's something there, I think, for the future. That's mm.
0: amazing. Guys at home as well, if you haven't watched The Cell, please do. It's very underrated. So there you go. <laughs> you get awesome moments like that.
3: Steve Jobs is another really interesting work of yours, oh, yeah. I think. Yeah. Each act is almost like one sequence where characters walk around in real time right. Uh, right. in the theatres. Did you film on location? Because if not, like, what were the challenges in sort of maintaining the continuity where each set has to link like, effortlessly into mm. the next
2: well, Steve Jobs was a very special project for me. I, I remember waiting an, uh, almost an entire year um, for the financing to come together on that film for, for Danny and the team. And um, I, I was very excited about it because uh, Danny Boylan had, had talked to me about several projects prior to that, and the timing had never worked out. And so this was our big moment to to sort of connect and and work together and and it was a huge honor. I mean, I absolutely love Danny. I think he's uh, still today one of the most talented working directors that there is. And I learned a great deal from him on that film. But obviously we had the wonderful Aaron Sorkin script, which was uh, read uh, like a stage performance with three acts. Mm was very clear that we needed three different looks for uh, Steve Jobs. You know, we, we were working with, a, a, as always, a limited budget, but it was very clear that the time period that we were dealing with, first of all, the late 80s, then the, the sort of the early 90s, and then the early sort of 2000s, we had an opportunity to show these different time periods uh, very clearly. The location still existed for a lot of these places. I mean, I had uh, literally goosebumps going into the actual garage where uh, Wozniak and Jobs had conceived their idea as teenagers for
0: Apple. Madness. And I wow. stood
2: in that garage and talked to his mom, his stepmom, oh. um, about what it was like, and. Uh, got to some
3: research
2: (laughs) yeah got to sit at the kitchen table and pick up the old dial-up telephone that was in avocado green and uh make a call on the phone that steve made his first sales of 50 circuit boards to a local electronic shop so that's one of the wonderful things we should talk about you know just as a side Mm. note with my job which is you do get to do things that you would otherwise never get to do you know yeah. it's really really special um, whether it's you know going to Hatfield House in, 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 uh, in England and hold letters with white gloves that were written from uh, Walsingham to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth I you know wow. actually hold those letters to picking up a telephone that Steve Jobs used to make his first sale of 50 circuit boards to a local electronics store. This, this is the range of things you get to do as a production designer, which is, to me, very special. You know, it's um, outside of the job, but it's always special. Mm-hmm.
3: True immersion in the films that you're making. I suppose Absolutely. it helps inspire you so much, I imagine. Mm-hmm. I, I can't even imagine how incredible that must be.
2: Yeah, but the but the Steve Jobs film uh, again, it it really cert, uh, centered around three locations, three presentations that Steve gave, uh, as you know, with the various products, which were really just backgrounds to showing who he was, the complicated man that he was, and it was sort of a gloves off study mm-hmm. uh, of Steve Jobs. It wasn't sort of you know putting him on a sort of a sacred pedestal and worshiping him necessarily. It was showing the man with all his faults. That made it a very, very interesting film to design. But because of our limited budget, I used really the idea of turning the clocks back on these locations which were in and around the Bay Area, San Francisco and down into Los Gatos and uh, the Silicon Valley. And uh, turn, the, turn the clocks back on a lot of these locations to make them feel very authentic to the time periods. We did have a number of sets, um, which, you know, this is part of the job. Sometimes you don't get credited. You know, I might get credit for spinning people around in Inception or uh, mm-hmm. X2 or whatever, designing spaceships, but there are also a lot of sets that you don't ever get credit for because they're invisible sets.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: For example, uh 10-second moment in Steve Jobs where uh, it's a rainy night and and Steve is getting fired from the Apple company. That's a set in a warehouse with with, uh, rain bars outside, pouring rain uh, down into a big dish in this warehouse so we didn't flood it. Think of all the work that goes into that. First, you have to find a warehouse. Then you have to get permission to build the set and organize. There's so much to do. It was a great deal of work, but but extremely rewarding. And then, of course, you get to stand and watch someone of Danny Boyle's calibre um, directing someone like Michael Fassbender or, or Kate Winslet. And it's, it's just a wonder to watch.
1: My next question is uh, something which is a bugbear of mine because I produce horror, I produce comedy, art house <clears throat> drama, and um, I'm often... So like, well, what kind of films are you making feel like quite pigeonholed? And I notice in your work, you do science fiction, you do superhero movies, you do historical dramas. And I'm just wondering, is that like a, a definite like a choice to keep you like not bored or to keep you like creatively motivated? Uh, is it just like it's a good story, so you pick it? <laughs>
2: Yes, I mean it's it's all of the above. I think I've I've tried really hard. It doesn't always work. You sometimes work on a film and you think, oh my god, what a dud, you know. But every film that I've chosen, I've tried to, you know, it's it's probably obvious. I put my heart and soul into my work, um, and and drag my, my my poor wife into it sometimes as well. So I need to make sure that every project that that I work on is is going to and this is going to sound terrible the way I'm going to say this, but lives up to the expectations of the work I'm going to do. <laughs> you know, I don't want to be on a film where everybody else is having a holiday. Yeah. You know, I want to be on a film where I feel everyone is as serious and as excited and motivated and talented as, as I hope to be. Otherwise it's such a waste of time. Mm-hmm. So rather than just specialize in one area, you know, once you've designed a spaceship very well, all you're going to get is is spaceship movie calls. You know,
0: can you design
2: this? Can you design that? Can you do Star Wars? Can you do the next? You know, wait Star a second. Trek, you did Star
0: Wars, right?
2: <laughs> I did. <laughs> Whoa, no way. Well, oh. it's been it had been done. What, what are <laughs> you going to have? So, what are you going to have? Seriously, this is an interesting point. Yeah. What are you going to have? Man. Someone like me. So, yes, I've done films that, or I've I've designed films that have, to a certain extent, been designed. We talked about X-Men 2. Mm-hmm. Perhaps you could say the same of Superman. Perhaps mm-hmm. you could say the same of Indiana Jones. I think I succumbed to my, you know, childhood urge to fulfil a fantasy with those films, to be mm-hmm. honest. Indiana Jones, Steven Spielberg, how do you say no? Mm-hmm. No, you don't. You know, no. <laughs> Superman, how do you say no? you know, uh, when they've been trying to make it for 20 years and you know you're the person that can actually make it happen. You know, you don't say no. Because remember at the time Superman Returns, um, they'd been trying for 20 years to make that Uh, film. mm -hmm. And afterwards they made a ton of them, I know. But uh, Star Wars for me, what are you going to do? I'm going to either redesign the world and upset everyone or I'm going to recreate the extraordinary designs by the likes of Joe Johnson and um, Ralph McQuarrie, the two geniuses who created the aesthetic for that film. I subsequently went on to work for Joe Johnson, who went on to be a director of films like The Rocketeer. I Mm -hmm. worked with him on The Nutcracker Mm -hmm. and The Four Elms. Um, But what are you gonna do? So it was a hard decision and it would give you job security, but I have plenty of that. So there really isn't a great deal to do yeah. Um, with the Star Wars universe, um, there's also, to be honest, a, a, a different process by which the Star Wars films are made, uh, which is extremely corporate and would not mm-hmm. really. Yeah. Often so be that's
0: that's what you're on about when you're talking about the new age of CGI becoming like the world of the film rather than you know yeah and like by you. the way to me it's
2: just another wonderful tool and i love cgi i mean i think you can you can create uh, endless worlds with it so i'm excited by it yeah mm-hmm. but i want to make sure it's a good story you know mm-hmm. i want to make sure it's something that i want to be invested in something that i think is going to be great you know
0: mm-hmm.
2: and every now and then it happens but it's rare it's hard to predict these things you know you can't sort of Pick a film and say that's the one that's going to be successful. And a lot of the films you want to work on, directors already have a designer, a, a relationship uh, that they, uh, you know, cherish. And I, I respect that. So it's a tricky, you know, it's tricky picking the films uh, to answer your question there, Maria. I, um, I would say I've I've got lucky. I mean, we worked on Agora, mm-hmm. and to me that was uh, uh, one of my cherished memories because I had. For, for about 10 years been watching this young up-and-coming Spanish uh, director called Alejandro Menabar, who was actually Chilean but had moved to Spain as a small boy and I watched his films with huge interest. you know my wife and I were just in awe of his his extraordinary work you know the sea inside the others you know his his uh, amazing talent. And so when I got the call, just out of the blue to come and help him put together this uh, amazing fourth century Roman Egyptian story that he'd written about this somewhat forgotten philosopher, I was absolutely there. So it is is—it is really interesting, I think, um, project choices. That's the thing that makes the job so exciting. I don't get up in the morning and go to a bank or, or or drive a bus or whatever it is i'm lucky I, I get to not know which universe i'm going to exist in for the next project that i work on
3: well a lot of the films we've been talking about are obviously very high concepts then you also mentioned earlier the challenges that went into making that one scene you mentioned in steve jobs where it was raining and you had to get a warehouse and everything like that oh and my the goodness. challenges that that came along with that. Do you think you have more sort of fun with the higher concepts or is it literally just as they come, you know, because recreating the real world can be just as sort of hard?
2: Yeah, it's it's each challenge is, you know, it's as they come, really. Mm. It's as they come, you just learn to deal with it. I mean, it's true that you have to be someone who's um, bold and I think you have to be someone who sort of knows a little bit about everything because it helps you if you're an all rounder you can pull upon things that other people can't. If you specialise in one thing, you're going to have a very tunnel uh, vision to solving problems. But if you, I don't know, if you've lived a bit, backpacked and been around the world a bit, and as, as we talked about earlier, tried your hand at being a poultry farmer or whatever it is, <laughs> you know, it can be anything. You, you, you can pull upon these experiences to, to help you in your work as a production designer i think and then of course the further on you go in your career you have all the experience of all those films to then channel uh, for each new project
0: and through all of that as well you have been responsible for some truly iconic moments so i know you were talking a little bit in reference to the spin corridor and inception or the finale in striker's dam and x-men 2 etc which part of your body of work are you most proud of would you say
2: Oh, it's really hard to answer that question. I don't know. I, you're, <laughs> it's like you know, I don't show. want to sound like some old fuddy-duddy, but your memory does fade. So yeah. you can't really view, and I can't really view a body of work uh, with any sort of true clarity because, um, number one, I'm always hopeful that my career is not over and I'm going to continue going for another 20 years. Um, and, and the other thing is, you know, every projects I've done, some of the ones that you're not going to want to talk about. I, I've had some really proud moments, you know, and, and and moments of relief where the right solution has come along at the, the last opportunity. I think for every film or or now, because, of course, I've moved into also television as well, I think um, there's always, uh, you know, a proud moment on every every project. There really is
0: mm-hmm.
2: somewhere in there, you know.
0: Speaking of television though, you are referring to Lissy's story there, yeah? Which is the yeah, well, I adaptation. say television, that sounds a yeah, bit yeah.
2: old fashioned. We're supposed to sort of call it uh, you know, streaming content, aren't we? Oh, <laughs> right.
0: Okay. <laughs> well, I'll still I'll still view it as television, don't worry. Yeah. Um I was just about to ask about that actually, because you've got that coming up, but also since that is directed by Pablo Lorraine, you've also worked mm. with Pablo on the upcoming Spencer.
2: Which, yes, yes, um, which I've
0: just seen. Actually, I just oh, so it. it's finished.
2: Well, there's a there's a fantastic edit. Um, wow.
0: Okay. Yeah. Whether that'll be the one that we see, who knows? Ooh. But yeah, um, just for the listeners at home, that is um, a recounting of the 1991 Christmas holiday at Sandringham House, where Princess Diana, played by Kristen Stewart, I'm sure you've seen the images. She decided then that she was going to leave Prince Charles. Can you tell us much about the film because? One of our colleagues, who is a resident uh, Princess Diana expert, Lucy, she would like to know what it was like replicating real places, especially since I've heard that you've been doing the majority of filming in Germany, as opposed to the UK. That's right.
2: That's right. I think most people were very frightened about that. I just rubbed my hands together and thought, what a fantastic challenge. (laughs) Well, I suppose I can't really talk about it for obvious reasons, but what I will say is that, the script is so fantastic, and, and Pablo is such a fantastically brilliant man. Neither of us felt restrained by just simply recreating visually what exists. When you watch this film, you will be shocked, you will be uh, feel many, many emotions. It is not the crown, that's all I'm gonna say. Wow, okay. For better or worse, <laughs> the better or worse, it is not the crown we, we went into this film saying we, we respect the crown we, we I personally love the crown I watch it but this is not the crown this is a very 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 different film mm. and the only thing I'm going to say is that in the same way as you had Ashton Kutcher playing Steve Jobs okay in, in, a, in a movie that mm-hmm. recounted his career step by step week by week year by year very, very linear Standard. storytelling.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, then you had Aaron Sorkin's script for Steve Jobs, directed wow. okay. by Danny Boyle. This is a very similar pattern. So you mm. think of the crown, and then this is verging on fantasy. It is surrealistic, it is bizarre. Awesome. It's it's a it's a work I, I think it's a work of art by Pablo. I think it's an extraordinary work of art. That's all I can
0: say. I'm very excited for it. That is he very did exciting. such a fantastic job with Jackie. So,
2: And you should not, You should. Yeah. no one should be worried about Kirsten Stewart. That's all I'm going to uh, say.
0: I'm not, mm-hmm. I think she's great. It's, it is.
2: <laughs> her, her performance of Diana is mind-blowing. Going in, I thought as a Brit, as one of the only, I think there were only two Brits on that movie, three Brits on that movie. There was myself, the costume designer, and the and the uh, the consultant for speech, right? And all three of us were just gobsmacked at what she's done.
0: Wow, wow, that is very exciting. Yeah, I I,
2: I I am blown away. Yeah.
3: Speaking of upcoming projects, you're a part of. You're doubling your duties, I think, by acting as a costume designer for the upcoming Neil Gaiman adaptation, uh, *The Graveyard Book*. Uh, is this an exciting oh. new opportunity for you,
2: or? Well, that's an off and on project, to be honest. At Disney, mm-hmm. um, uh, at one point uh, we had Ron Howard uh, directing the Graveyard Book for a while, and uh, there have been some other directors on that project. But yes, I was was hired by um, by Ron and uh, Disney to put together the world for the Graveyard Book. So they wanted something that that um, really was new. You know, these sort of adaptations from children's books, of course, the most famous being Harry Potter, you know, creating that world is is a very big responsibility. And so for the graveyard book, although it's a smaller scale, the responsibility felt very much the same for me. I mean, I'm a big Neil Gaiman fan and um, the idea of making a, a sort of a coherent language between the costumes and the sets uh, was a wonderful appeal for me anyway you know so we'll see we'll see like i say it's an off and on again project it's uh, very often with these hollywood films um that happens something will will be around for a while then it will go away then it will come back and you know
3: very exciting though, nonetheless
2: yeah oh absolutely <laughs> yeah. yeah it's a wonderful book wonderful I'll I have to to read. read
0: it. It. Mm-hmm. yeah that's it
1: Uh, So I think I have the last question of the night. Is that correct? I believe so. As a a team, we're very much sort of on the cusp of going, like breaking into our first feature films. And while everybody has a different route and a different story, I wondered if you had any advice, Guy, for somebody who wanted to be a production designer, sort of getting started on short films and then moving through art departments and into becoming a fully-fledged production designer like you are. Do you have any hints or tips for
2: them yeah I mean I, I always say the same thing which is it's it's really it's it's a really hard job and there are going to be times when it's absolutely awful so whatever you do love it uh-huh. make sure that you love the job make sure that you really are passionate and it's truly what you want to do and it's not just a title that you kind of fancy or something that you think is going to sound good on social media or talking to your friends, you have to really want to do this job. From the bottom of your soul, you need to try it out, and if you love it, just great. But I think uh, I I see a lot of people who aspire to it and don't really understand what they're getting into. Mm. It's not a nine-to-five job. That's all I can say. It's not very glamorous, I know, but... (laughs)
1: But I wonder, like, are there any production designers who'd had, like, a big impact on your career or oh. um, sort of set this, the bar in, in your mind? Because I, I I know that you're an absolute perfectionist. and So sort of, I wondered if anybody had sort of... Anyone you look at as, like, somebody really informing your process or inspiring your career? The way yeah, you
2: know, I mean, I'm always in admiration of, of, quite frankly, most of the people who do what I do because I know when I watch something, I know the work that's gone into it, whether it's a commercial or a, you know, a huge uh, feature film. So I'm always in huge admiration. And I know a lot of the designers and art directors and set decorators and costume designers out there. So it's lovely to see all of their careers uh, progress and their design and their visions. You know, you see that sort of thread of what they're doing. So that's always very exciting. Um, But people that I, admired. I, I think I always tried to look at the likes of Stuart Craig, and uh, who's a, a wonderful British production designer, also from the Royal College of Art, um, and of course the great Dante Ferretti, the Italian um, production designer. Um, these are sort of my two sort of living heroes, I suppose. Um, but uh, it goes way back, you know, to a lot of the sort of classic films in the past I, I mean i i have such admiration for all of them really
0: well i'd like to round off our discussion tonight by saying thank you once again to guy for chatting with us
2: thanks for having me yeah, yeah.
0: thank you i mean your insights has been absolutely fantastic and i've learned a lot from this i hope Great. you at home have learned a lot too to jack and maria thank you so much for being excellent co-hosts as always and i hope you've enjoyed the discussion too Back to you at home. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please spread the word and send it to your friends and particularly to any friends who are trying to break into production design. If you would like to contact us with some ideas of where we could take the podcast next, then drop us a line at hello at above the line and do remember to give us a follow on social media for more news and updates. So on Twitter, we are at above the line underscore CB and on Instagram, we are at above the line dot CB. And there you can keep your ear to the ground for more stuff in the pipeline. Till next time, bye bye.